warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Podcast, the very British podcast about very British movies, with just a hint of professionalism. Good morning, Scott here. Pleased to say that I'm joined by two of my dear friends. There's Stephen. Hello, mate. How are you? Oh, living the dream. How are you doing? Very well, thank you, sir. On this just about sunny Sunday morning. And joining us again is the welcome return of Anthony. Hello, mate. Hello, everybody. Living the public school dream. Is it a dream or a nightmare after watching yeah, what we've well, just yeah. watched? <laughs> Depends if you've got enough weapons. That was going to be my first question, actually, to you guys. What the hell did I just watch? Yeah, We've all had experience of this movie previously, but I think there's been a bit of a gap for all of us before watching it again this week. Am I right in saying? Yeah, about 25 years in my case. Mm-hmm. Stephen? Yeah. Probably about six years uh, ah, right, previously. Okay. I can remember oh, correctly. Oh. That's my experience of the film. I don't know how this reflects your experience of school, the two of you. <laughs> um, Scott, Scott, I imagine quite closely. I, I went to a grammar school which had certain elements, but nothing like what we've just witnessed, I tell you. <laughs> when, when was it I watched it? It was, it was the early days of Channel 4 where I did a lot of my you know, film discovery, same as you, Stephen, same as you, Anthony, you know, those, mm. those great movies that Channel 4 would dare to put out. Mm. And well, yeah, we're talking nearly 40 years ago. I watched it far too young, and as I said to you guys off air, I think I'm still too young to have watched it this time round because there's stuff in there that I'm just I'm, I'm scratching my head, and I've got to go back and rewatch it because I'll let you into a secret. I absolutely adored this movie. It's a '60s movie, which you know has got my name written all over it, and it just completely hooked me from start to finish. And why I haven't watched it in 40 years has completely baffled me. Tell you what we'll do: let's play the trailer. It's 1968. It's Lindsay Anderson's If. This is an English public school. This is where Britain raised its empire builders of yesterday and still trains its leaders of tomorrow. This is the unchanging English public school. This is where you still learn to play the game. The angles of the one equal the angles of the other. Understand, buddy? Good. Far from home, far from your family, you learn what to expect from life. Just remember that life here is a matter of give and take. We are your new family, and you must expect the rough and tumble that goes with any family life. In this world, you have to watch out for yourself and obey the rules, as in the world outside. But some people are born to break the rules. <laughs> You three have become a danger to the morale of the whole house. 
and we've decided to beat you for it. I serve the nation. You haven't the slightest idea what it means, have you? You mean that bit of wool on your tit? With its freedom and excitement, its visions and its dreams, this is the world of youth, a world of fantasy that sometimes turns to strange violence. Look at me. I'll kill you. You won't forget them. Christine Noonan as the girl. Malcolm McDowell as Mick the rebel. Richard Warwick. And David Wood as his friends who share a secret loyalty. Three young people who reject a world that the old have made and decide to take things into their own hands. If may shock you, it will surely surprise you. It's a film that will make you take sides. Which side will you be on? Okay, that's If, released in the UK, 1968. Now, Anthony, you said it was released at Christmas, 1968. Am I right? Yes, like Christmas fair oh. for all the family. <laughs> Fed up with those endless versions of A Christmas Carol. Let's watch If instead, kids, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Directed by Lindsay Anderson, as I say. Starring Malcolm McDowell, David Wood, Richard Warwick, Christine Noonan, Rupert Webster. And then amongst the teachers, you've got Peter Jeffrey, you've got Arthur Lowe, there's Mona Washbourne, Jeffrey Chater, Charles Lloyd Pax in there again. We were speaking about him very recently. Graham Crowden, very young Robin Asquith as well, as one yes. of the school kids. Yeah. The synopsis. Lindsay Anderson's If is a daringly anarchic vision of British society set in a boarding school in late 60s England. Before Kubrick made his mischief iconic in Clockwork Orange, Malcolm McDowell made a hell of an impression as the insouciant Mick Travis, who along with his school chums, trumps authority at every turn. Finally emerging as a violent saviour in the vicious games of one-upmanship played by both students and masters. Mixing colour and black and white as audaciously as it mixes fantasy and reality, If remains one of cinema's most unforgettable Forgettable rebel yells. That is a brilliant synopsis, isn't it? I didn't yeah, write I it. That. I didn't that's write good, yeah. it, by the way. That that's from the Criterion Collection on the back of the Blu-ray. Doesn't give too much away, but at the same time, if you was to read that, knowing a little bit about the movie, I think you'd be intrigued, wouldn't you, guys, as to what this whole thing was about? Yeah, it's interesting that it came out in '68. Apparently, because uh, I did, I do have the DVD and I did watch a few extras and stuff. Apparently, it was actually being filmed before the Paris riots, student riots. It was just before and, also, or, and during, wasn't it? I think a little bit of it they said yeah yeah it was all perfect sort of timing yeah well it came out i think a bit later than they'd expected or something like that and then there was also the prague spring so it's, it's a weird kind of counterculture film because you've got these rebels but they're obviously within a totally different you know it's not swinging london and it's not kitchen sink you know it's neither of those things it's uh, like a posh kitchen sink i suppose <laughs> well for a, for a little while it remains timeless doesn't it because there's no indication of the era until they go out of the school you know and, and you see like modern cars and, and, and the cafe and things like that for, for a few minutes it could be set in any period because you know the traditions are like long standing in these organizations well, i did notice they had a picture of mao on there like yes. a poster of Mao on their wall, and there was a little bit of that going on. Yeah, you know, yeah. you could feel like it's sort of as the film went on, you could, you could there were a couple of political things, but yeah, I, I don't think that tradition has changed much. <laughs> <laughs> I think I read <laughs> yeah, somewhere the feeling that... it just been hundreds of years like that. 
Exactly, yeah. yeah, and it is. It's all very tradition-based. And you saying about the mm. posters, I think I read somewhere that Lindsay Anderson asked the cast to select their own posters for their rooms in the dormitory. He said you can put up whatever you want. So uh, I think Geronimo was up on the wall at one point as well, wasn't he? Yeah, and the picture of Lenin in disguise that doesn't look like Lenin at all. That's um, genuine, isn't it? He actually did that, yeah. didn't he, to escape yeah, or something? Yeah, he did that to escape with sure, a different passport. So it's definitely got lots of bits in it that are subtle, bringing in the counterculture revolution that was happening at the time like you said that you know even the references to length of hair mm. uh, things like that it just it does tie in absolutely with what was going on around and was like a culmination as well of the 60s which obviously uh, ties in very much with Scott's wheelbase yeah I mean the clues yeah. are all there if you choose to look at it you know that about revolution mm. and, and rebelling you know but even then when you get to the final scenes you don't realise it's going to hit that far you don't know where this movie goes because it, it starts off as a fairly straightforward narrative almost documentary style we said guys didn't we that mm. you know life in a public school but then every now and again something would be put in or a bit of black and white footage or something and it would just disorientate you slightly it's like oh hang on a minute this isn't what i was expecting i mean what's the first bit can you remember that sort of like jarred was there a bit of black and white footage quite early on i can't remember the first scene that goes into the surreal is obviously the cafe yeah but apparently yeah i, I was listening to a discussion about this film apparently the color and black and white was completely arbitrary they, they didn't pick specific scenes which i was absolutely amazed by yes yeah it seems strange doesn't it it was all to do with the scene in the chapel i think it was and because of the stained glass windows uh, Right. They wanted to use natural light, but because they couldn't, you know, high speed film, you know, people who know more about these things will probably tell us, but all to do with the colour stock was, you know, high speed film, and it wasn't quite working out. So they decided that the right. chapel scenes were going to be filmed in black and white, and Lindsay Anderson liked the effect so much, he decided to just do it randomly at other points yeah. in the movie. And it is totally random, isn't it? I don't think there's any link to this sort of black and white business at all. I think the gym. It's a gymnastic scene, that kind of really homoerotic scene with the young fella. Is that that's black and white? I think when the guy's working out on the bars and the young guy's watching him. I think it is. Again, I, think, I can't remember. You I know, guess, you'd yeah. feel like the more stylized bits should be black and white, but I don't think they are necessarily. But I remember that one being like that. Yeah, you know? because at first I thought it was being used as a device that the black and white scenes were just a fantasy in Malcolm McDowell's head. You know, as yes. in, like in the cafe, and he's seducing the young lady. But then it doesn't, as the film progresses, it's totally random, which, again, throws you completely off kilter, doesn't it? You know, you just don't know where this film is going to go. Yeah, because one way they'd used it in the past was when we did Raging Bull, if you remember, that, that film's black and white, and the only colour bits is those home movies, because it's the only time his life was actually going well. Yes, that was so it. So that was a way they used colour in that way. And then, other again, as you said, yeah, you could use it as fantasy, black and white, mm -hmm. like sort of smoky black and white. And you've got a matter of life and death where there's the difference between yeah. life and other life. But this, it was just random that wasn't designed to do anything other than grab your attention and make you wonder and think, really. Yeah. The thing I like about this, um, about a matter of life and death and say Wizard of Oz, they're completely the opposite of each other. The fantasy world of Oz is in colour. Mm. And in matter of life and death, the afterlife is in black and white. And the colour scenes are the everyday story of the war. It was mm. a brave move by Powell and Pressburger to do that, where you think they would 
reverse it, wouldn't you? You know, having the war story in the black and white and the more fantastical elements in colour. But as you said, there's not even any thought gone into this. It was just a happy sort of like accident that made Lindsay Anderson decide that, you know what, I'm just going to put some random black and white in here just for a laugh. It's just it's As if I'm not going to freak out the people enough when they get to the end of this movie. We'll just play with their brains a bit with the, with the colour sequences. We've seen that a lot, don't we? I mean, we see that in music. Uh, I wasn't going to mention the Beatles, but hey. Well, go uh, on, please. <laughs> We should make that a running. We should make that a running theme. <laughs> yeah. I'll just try, see how obscure the reference. Well, I'm, I'm... We should have a. We should have some kind of counter. Uh, for <laughs> yeah. Each 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 film being a a, a five Beatle reference film. Or, 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 or we could introduce the bingo cards like we do with the Hammer Horror. It's like when Anthony <laughs> says, I wasn't going to bring in the Beatles, but... Now, what I was going to say was that, Scott, you'll know that, that they made use of really primitive equipment and that they were always on the lookout for sort of accidents, you know, and then yeah. capitalising on them. So I think with creativity, I think definitely being open to them is, is the genius part, you know? Of course, yeah. Mm. And also having a cinematographer who had been working with... Was it Milos Forman? I think he, he he was Hungarian, wasn't he, or something? Didn't speak a word of English. This guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and probably I'm, I'm assuming went on to do Cuckoo's Nest. I don't know. I'm going to have to look this up. But I know he worked quite extensively with Milos Forman in Europe. So I mean, there is a link with Cuckoo's Nest, really, isn't there? Because they are in an institution. <laughs> yeah. and he's the rebel, kind of trying to inspire them. Although there's only really those three plus the young guy Phillips and the girl. Obviously, there's five of them in the end, isn't there? Yeah. But he's the ringleader he's the one who's merging their blood at the end and everything like that <laughs> but Murphy was more like out on his own but he's still trying to inspire the others oh god yeah definitely just trying to yeah re- rebel from within you know mm. Stephen I just want to go back to you because you're the one that's watched it more recently than us even though it's six years ago isn't that recent but you've seen it a couple of times now in quicker succession than we have that's what I'm trying to say going back to it mate I mean I'm taking it you liked this film beforehand and you've, you've still enjoyed it or is it a film that you really don't get on with I'm assuming there's some element of joy for you in this movie somewhere oh absolutely I do enjoy it it um, reinforces some of my prejudices that I shouldn't have about uh, <laughs> class unfortunately yeah. uh, you get which, angry watching you know, it Stephen you get very angry. Well, it's yeah, I don't, you know, not that I need it to be feeling an inverted class prejudice, but I, I I do feel in tune with that. However, going back to it each time, I have this thing where I tend to forget that sort of the big culmination of where it leads to happens so very very late in the film. Mm. I have in my mind that yes, I know it happens late in the film, but I still expect it to happen about fifteen minutes, half an hour before the end, rather than say seven minutes before the end yeah really <laughs> but that's the main thing that throws me off really when i go back to it each time and i try to leave it a certain amount of time several years really between uh, sort of consciously because that disjointedness way is part of the experience of watching the film that's what they've designed it to do to try and throw people off and if i'm watching it every year like i do with some other films you lose that I think, and that kind of devalues the experience. So, yes, I do like it. With Anthony's references to the Beatles, it'll, you know, sooner or later it'll come to me, it'll be something to do with class and, you know, working class and all this kind of stuff. So, uh, and this sits with with me certainly in that respect. It just makes me wonder why we let these people end up in government. To be 
See, mine was yeah. the opposite experience here because it was so long between viewing. The only bit I could remember going into this was the final scenes. I mean, we haven't mm. actually said what goes on, but I don't think it's going to be too much of a spoiler if we do give it away, guys. This movie is 50 years old, so um, feel yeah. free to spoil as we go along. Mm. I completely forgot it was divided into chapters as well. There's, oh, right. Because there's, yeah. it, am I right? There's about seven or eight different chapters, isn't there? And, and each one is sort of obviously headed with a relevant title just to what we can expect in the following 10 minutes um yeah i'd almost forgotten about that i don't think it really added anything in it okay it's fine you know but i've just actually forgotten about the chapters until you said it so i don't think they had that much effect but i think it's a film of two halves i don't know when the cafe scene comes in it's fairly near the the beginning isn't it yeah and the bit at the end yeah let's spoil it yeah (laughs) It, it felt a bit it's a kind of phrase they use in podcasts that that it wasn't earned. Right. I'm not sure if it was or not. I haven't made my mind up. It seemed to come a bit too out of the blue. Yeah, you could have had a scene that sort of where he got radicalised, but I suppose with this film, you know, it's not logic, is it? It's... <laughs> I don't know. Do you think it was earned or did it come a bit too out of the blue? What do you reckon? What, the cafe I scene? Think... No, no, the, the them getting... Uh... Armed and oh right, got Steve. I, think, I think that the I think that the radicalization would have come had they been rising up in you know in support of something or, or an ideology or, or anything. Whereas mm. this is a react just a reaction against. They've been all the way through the film. They've been sort of spurred towards this by their treatment and by the system. Yeah, and it's that destructive element, like they said. At various quotes that I've got in the film about the purity of war and, and the fact that yeah. you know, changing the world with, with a bullet in the right place and it's they've not got an ideology of something that they've, despite having Mao and Lenin on the wall or you know Churchill yeah. and, and other people that are, and obviously that Audrey Hepburn they're not rising <laughs> up in a cause like that they're just rising up in adolescent frustration of pushing back against the adults or the, the system around them that they feel is treating them unfair and I, yeah. I think they are being treated unfairly but that's the system i don't think it is that they're radicalized and they're fighting for something and that's the real difference that would have been if a different film if they've been radicalized and moved towards something um like the inspiration of the Paris riots or the Hungarian Revolution yeah. or whatever, it would have created a different nuance to it and a different focus to that ending rather than that ending just being nihilistic in a way. Yeah, I mean, you don't really, they don't really have political discussions. I mean, they discuss you know, the best way to die or something or the worst way. But uh, I suppose the caning, actually, thinking about it, that's the catalyzing event. Yeah. So I suppose it's a metaphorical, you know, it's within their little world, it's quite a major event, you know. <laughs> this was the bit I was going to ask. At what point in relation to the caning does he say I've got live ammunition and he shows the bullets is that after yeah it feels it, like it all comes towards the end I don't doesn't know doesn't it that's the thing it's like because it's we're just from been... the the war games they the pick up the live ammunition there and that's where they, they stash some and keep it for the, yeah. the ending but it's finding all the cache of weapons when they get tasked to go and clear out the cellar under the stage sort of thing that's it that's when they find live ammunition well they find multiple and everything, didn't so. they? They find everything. Yeah, mortar bombs and yeah, mortars. I can't believe it. Yeah. Which is why that bit I thought was possibly a dream sequence or something because that didn't ring true. And I'm thinking, okay, is this bit in black and white and colour? My brain was going all over the place watching the movie, trying to justify the scenes and the action that was taking place. And it's like, well, what was Aunt Lindy Anson thinking here? Is mm. is that real? Is is this going on in Malcolm McDowell's head? You know that they've been punished, but then it's gone off this tangent where he's dreaming that they. 
they find weapons. You know, yeah. you could read into this a thousand different ways, this movie, because some of it is very surreal. Very surreal. Yeah, we haven't even mentioned Arthur Lowe singing with his wife for company <laughs> on recorder. Incredible. This is, I think, the year that Dad's Army was released, or if not the year before. 68. It was the year it started, yeah, the TV show started. 68, yeah. yeah. 68. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then Arthur Lowe's wife in the film as well, her taking like a almost Lady Godiva walk naked through Lady the environs of yeah, the, sort of the school. Well, yeah, fundling the, the clothing of the boys. Yeah. I was going to say more is, Lady yeah, Macbeth. You're right, it's got a, a strange quality to it because she's previously been sat there at the dinner table sort of with her hand covering the, the, just below her neck because she's aware that they're looking, these young <laughs> boys are looking at her in a lascivious way because they're yeah. basically only two females in the entire school. But then she's on the other side of it rather than being some kind of victim there, she's kind of eroticizing the school and the pupils in a way that maybe makes her, you know, maybe there's a twisted thing within it as far as her feeling there's some kind of a desired or something other because she's in a strange situation with having a, an older husband like he yeah. is who prefers to play at recorder and sleep in a separate bed to her. But she, yeah. the way she's, as I say, walking through the school environs naked when everybody else is out on the playing field cheering by order, cheering the school team on, that's uh, quite surreal as well. And I think from what I read, quite revolutionary in the fact that that full frontal nudity prolonged um, in a British film when previously you'd only got glimpses really according to the, you know, the reports of what yeah. the censor allowed. If you got the X certificate based purely on that scene on one condition that Lindsay Anderson dropped some of the male genitalia in the shower scene apparently. Bollocks. Yeah. Bollocks. Bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the censor said, no, you can have uh, Arthur Lowe's missus doing her Lady Macbeth, you know, going through the corridors mm. in, in, in the buff, but that shower scene has to be cut. But then I think in subsequent like releases, the whole lot has been in the more enlightened times. You know, it's, it's all been reinstated, all of those scenes that were missing. But it's almost um, like the system where they used to have with language that mm. you're, you're allowed two fucks, but you weren't allowed a, a, and, and five bastards, but you weren't allowed a cunt and <laughs> uh, things like that. You had set some kind of rating system of, of scoring points and you had to have the maximum points you're allowed. Yeah. yeah, well, a bush is worth two bollocks in this case, isn't it? So. <laughs> I wanted to ask you something. Yeah, you know what, what flashed through my mind when I was watching all this weird stuff at the school? What film have you reviewed for Real Britannia that has lots of people behaving bizarrely at a school? Um, Carry on, teacher. Well, yes, <laughs> well, I haven't seen that. Yeah, but... Uh, included a penguin. What was the one penguin uh, roaming Kez. the halls? No, it's Gregory's Girl. Oh, oh Gregory's Girl. Girl. Yeah, we've yeah. done a lot of school yeah. movies, actually. For some, for some actually. reason, it just pops into my head. It's like people just behaving completely bizarrely in a school. Yeah, <laughs> there's, a, there's a difference in the, the type of pupil, obviously. But... Yes, yes. Uh, wow, the history is... teacher arriving on his bike. Yeah. <laughs> like riding right into the classroom. Well, certainly my school experience was closer to Gregory's Girl or, or, you know, even, or even to some extent Kez than it was towards this. So I don't know about you two, but yeah, this wasn't my school days. It's a bit of a theme, isn't it? If we were to sort of lump together all the school-based movies we've reviewed on Real Britannia, each one would be completely different in tone and, you know, style and storyline. Like you say, you've got Kez, Gregory's Girl, you've got this. Uh, I, I bet we've done some more as well. I bet there's some more. Carry on, te- carry carry on, on teach. teacher. Carry on, teacher. Exactly. It was, it was school, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, did please, sir. Please, well, sir, as well. There you go. We, we, 
we mentioned <laughs> briefly some of the teachers like Arthur Lowe and Graham Crowden's one of the teachers and Roger Lloyd Pack, Mona Washbourne's the the matron. And and yeah. their actions are quite bizarre. It's not just limited to Arthur Lowe. Some of them, like you said, the, the history teacher riding his bike into the classroom. Um, yeah. And Lloyd Pack is wearing sunglasses all the time. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what? It's it's difficult to take any of this film at face value, yeah, isn't it? Because well, the the more I'm thinking about it, having watched it two nights ago, I'm trying to still piece in my mind what was real and what was fantasy, if if at all. Mm. Well, if you know anything about Lindsay Anderson, he was a very very strange person, mm-hmm. very very I mean amazing I think. Amazing imagination. If it was imagination, that's the bit we don't know. Yeah. But uh, this is obviously a lot of his. Uh, he had apparently had like a lot of repressed sexuality. So there's all that there. And I think the Lady Godiva. I think <laughs> the way she shows how repressed she is is just brilliant. I mean, it's, <laughs> she's like fondling the clothes when she's going through the changing room and stuff. And, and then you got the you've got the sort of pervy chaplain, the one who emerges out of a drawer at the end. <laughs> that, that is brilliant. <laughs> That is like, what like, is going on there? That is that so coffee. funny. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> let, let's go to the Village Hall of Fame, guys, because we can talk more about all of these characters as they come up. I don't think it's a particularly big cast this week, but I think Stephen may have had a little bit of work to do. Grab your keys, mate. Let's go and have a look. Okay, Stephen, Village Hall of Fame, where we celebrate anybody that's appeared on the show three times or more. How was it for you this week? Well, initially I thought it was going to be fairly barren, to be honest, because mm-hmm. the main characters, although we recognise their faces, they haven't really been in anything that we've watched before. Mm-hmm. But then it's the background characters, obviously, is where it started to take off, as we know that is what <laughs> happens. And we've ended up with three people making their second appearances. Uh, ben Harris, who was in The Reckoning. Mm-hmm. Richard Everett, who was in Police Sir. So he, he, oh. he experienced two different versions of a school film. And Tommy Godfrey, who, who was in Passport to Pimlico. Okay. We do have one person making their debut uh, as far as free appearances and actually getting their seat yeah. in the Village Hall of Fame. And that's Arthur Lowe. Ah. Due to previously being in Dad's Army and Theatre of Blood. Theatre of Blood, of course. That's yeah. good. So he's inducted. He's our only inductee. Yeah, he's, he's the only inductee this time around. We do have two people making their fourth appearances, though. That's Anthony Nichols, who people like me recognise as Tremaine out of the Champions. Mm-hmm. That, he was in Dunkirk, Man for All Seasons, Man Who Haunted Himself. And then we also have making her fourth appearance is Mona Washburn, yep. who was in... Doctor in the House, Dunkirk, and Yield to the Night. Brilliant. So, and then there's one final person to mention who is making their seventh appearance. Oh, I, uh, I think we Charles, got, yeah, I was going to say, I think we Charles got... Charles Lightpack, yeah. yes. Trigger's dad, that one, as, as we referred sure. to him. Yeah. yeah, he was in Bedazzled, Dracula, Last Holiday, Man Who Haunted Himself, Quatermass 2, and Yield to the Night. And is that it? Um, there's no one, no one past that, the that, seven. That's it. it. I mean, we there's plenty of other faces that we recognise as you've gone yeah. through. Yeah. 
regards to people who I've even gone back over some of them thinking, have I missed Because I'm sure they must have been in more than one thing, but no, it just by happenstance with regards to what films we've done. We haven't seen them. Probably about probably about five or six of them that would be in if we just picked slightly different films to what we have done. And I imagine there will be in before too long, especially the rate at which we're going through films. Yeah. But at the moment, we're in a situation whereby they're not cropping up yet. Graham Crowden, I imagine, might pick up. And obviously, we've got Robin Asquith that will the when eventually yes. um, it, it comes about. And um, Brian Pettifer, I imagine, will come in at some point because he's obviously a very familiar face as well. Very young in um, this. Very young in this. Yeah, very, very young yeah. in this. Yeah. But for now, this is all we have as far as throwing into the mix. So it's an interesting one, then, isn't it? Um, I think it was because to keep costs down, I think Lindsay Anderson specifically chose a lot of theatrical actors rather than screen actors. I think I read somewhere today as well. We could probably expect to see Peter Jeffrey at some point, who's the headmaster. I yeah. absolutely adore Peter Jeffrey, a great, great actor. Apparently, Simon Ward as an uncredited appearance as one of the schoolboys and I know we don't usually you know refer to like producers and screenwriters unless you know there's like really significant sort of names in that but I've just noticed on this cast list I know that Michael Medwin was a producer that's quite prominent in the in the uh, credits at the beginning and Michael Medwin I think is in the Hall of Fame apparently uncredited producer did not even know this Albert Finney oh, oh, didn't know that. no I've literally just spotted that but apart from that as you say Stephen for a cast probably about 40 or 50 40 people I'd say very slim pickings today that's an incredible sort of situation because I've just gone back and edited the Carry On Regardless episode which we recorded pretty much about a year ago nearly now this is how behind we are and you were contending with a cast list of over a hundred people for that episode yes Wow. In in a Carry On movie, it was it was as many people in that cast as it was in Night to Remember, and then you get this where, like you said, there's some standout faces and, and people we recognise. All of them from the main characters are pretty. Even is it Richard Warwick who was one of the one of the leads? All right, not a major film career, but I remembered him from what was the Judy Dench Michael Williams sitcom Fine Romance? Yeah, Fine Romance. Time goes back, isn't it? Yeah, the one before that, Fine Romance, not the one with Jeffrey oh, Palmer, right. the one with Michael Williams, her husband, yeah. and he was. Judy Dench's brother-in-law. You know, he was a famous sort of like sitcom actor of the 80s, you know. Interesting. That is a really interesting Hall of Fame. Thank you for doing that, mate. That's, uh... Yeah, and I'm not really sure how much we're going to get Malcolm McDowell, despite him being fairly famous and recognisable mm. British actor and one that hasn't too much turned himself into somebody who goes around doing uh, an impersonation of an American is celebrated for his Britishness and you know, that's why he often plays villains I think but he once had done I think Clockwork Orange I think from then onwards it wasn't really a too much in British films as such. It, no. was, it was more of an international basis, which I know going on to later on reflects uh, some ideas for sequels and stuff. But mm. yeah, I mean, a lead's life made good, really, in that sense. Am I right in saying this is his film debut? It's his film debut. He was in, I think, it was either Coronation Street or Crossroads or something like that <laughs> previously, and, and one or two other little bits of TV stuff, just um, small parts. But this was his first big thing that he, he did, and certainly his first film. And, and it was on the back of this that he got the part in Clockwork Orange I read as well. That's right, isn't it? But... And used this performance also to work out how to perform as Alex in that because of sort of, he wasn't really sure what was wanted from him and he wasn't really given the same direction yeah. um, from Kubrick with it. So he went back to Lindsay Anderson who basically did Kubrick's job for him in that respect. Well, what he said to him is that the way you walk into the gym when you're about to get caned, that's mm. Alex. 
Ah. It's amazing. Lindsay Adson read the Cotler Corrin script and said, that's the way you play it. Just watch that scene. Do it like that. That swagger, <laughs> that swagger that he really? has where he takes the coat off and puts it over the bar and yeah. defiantly just bends over, you know, so come on, do your worst sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That was quite I mean, harrowing to watch, actually, that scene. I think that was just brilliantly done. Yeah. Because you can't hear what's going on. The, the camera's fixed with the other boys who are waiting to be Kane and that, that thwack of the Kane, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> the run-up that the guy takes. It's the run-up, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like that you have to say thank you at the end as well. Thank you, yeah, with, with tears in his eyes, but still And, and shakes, it, shakes his hand. Um, <laughs> thank you so apparently much. Apparently the certain amount of that was ad-libbed with regards to the that scene and the, what was, you know, the, mm. the dialogue within that certain amount of it. I can believe that's yeah. quite realistic, though, can't you, from those sort of bloody schools, you know? Yeah, you were saying earlier, Stephen, about these are the people that, that end up running the country. They get to get taught hierarchy, privilege, you know, you, you take your lumps and then you have to say thank you for it. The thrashing never hurts anybody or boy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get where I am today without getting a good thrashing. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that would have been the same reaction if that had been attempted at my school. Yeah. Um, really, I think there would have been... Uh, a few teeth somebody with then there there would have been a few teeth missing and, and a nose across somebody's <laughs> face I can't believe it's interesting though isn't it because this is all very upper class but it's still pretty brutal you know it's a different well, it, brutality well they, described, isn't it? well they described the values and the mores of the school as being middle class actually <laughs> at one point right, right. the head teacher tries to, to say that they're middle class which I don't know what they would describe as upper class in that way then that's uh, uh, so this where is... they position themselves I mean that's upper middle really isn't it public school so I know? mean it's one of those lower echelons of the public school system it's not your Eton and your Harrow it's it's one of the one of the ones yeah. you have to go to if your parents can't quite afford Eton or Harrow isn't it it's, yeah you're going to go to this one mm. sort of part of an unofficial trilogy guys you know this story as well yeah yeah I have seen No Lucky Man so mm. long ago I can barely remember any of it, but yeah. I think it was only a trilogy. He's only the same character by name, apparently. Exactly, yeah. It's so not right. the same character in style or or even in background. It is literally the name. I think some of the other names are transposed as well to other characters. Right. Yeah, if I if I remember correctly, I, I I think it was this. It was an unofficial trilogy and wasn't properly, as we've said. Yeah. Mm. But there's a kind of it's a reimagining if things had gone differently. So if he'd gone through the school system and come out the other side. Mm. Um, or he hadn't been sent to this school, he'd been sent somewhere else. It's what the life would have been. And yeah. so that's where it, it kind of is a, an alternate reality for the same characters in a way. But I know there was a, an actual sequel penned just uh, in the last days of Lindy Anderson before he passed away. Mm. But And some of those elements do pick bits out of Old oh, Lucky Man or Britannia Hospital to have the character development in a ways. But I'm not really sure that the what future the, the the main characters from this film could have considering the ending, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Uh, well, well, they make a sequel called A Clockwork Orange in one in one way. <laughs> if, you, if you take away the fact that there's too much realism in this and that anything goes, really. I mean, he comes out of that. He's got the droogs. He's is, got his two droogs in this film, isn't he? He is a bit of a companion yeah. it's piece. It's not a million miles it? away, is it? It's a companion you know? piece when you think about it almost, isn't it? It's a great double bill. Yeah, yeah. What, what happened to uh, Mick Travis? <laughs> wow, didn't even think of that. Yeah. yeah. It's reimagining in, in a lot of ways all of those the clockwork orange or lucky man but it's amazing it is like the stock characters where it's the you know a lot of the same actors and to some extent playing the same named characters just in different situations kind of 
and that I'm not really sure how much that's ever been done before and or, or again it's a bit of a strange one to try and get your head around how that fits and how much uh, I can only assume that was deliberate to try and make people wonder mm. I don't think it's just purely lack of imagination with regards to character names because that would be <laughs> oh, I can't think of a name. Let's just call them the same as we call them. That, that one worked in 1968. I'll use it again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Talking about the names shows a rebellion slightly of the characters. Certainly, the main character that obviously called Michael. You wouldn't expect somebody in a public school to necessarily go around by using the name Mick. That's. Yeah. I think yeah. Mick is, is comes across as a lot more working class. Oops. You would expect them to be getting their, their more formalised names or getting a nickname rather than it just being Mick. And whether that's something is, the character uh, has decided to try and embrace a, a, something that's counter to what the environment is, I don't know. But it, it did struck me, it's always struck me that it's a bit weird being called Mick in that situation. Mm. Um, unless it was because of Jagger, I don't know. Oh, that's yeah. a point, yeah. I thought of that. Yeah. yeah, he's sort of, he comes across like about five years ahead of his time almost, you know, it's almost like the public school's stuck in, well, the public school's probably stuck in about 1835, to be honest, but well, you <laughs> he think... is a more modern person, so I suppose he's having a modern name. There's a good it's indi- like having the moustache, isn't it? He's just, just, about he's just to... trying to gesture. Mm. Yeah, just about to say there's a good indication that right at the beginning where he walks in hiding the moustache that he's grown over the summer holidays. You know, and then yeah. he has to shave it off immediately because he's back in that world. Yeah. Um, usually, I might ask you guys if there's a favourite scene or or anything that stands out from this movie, but I think there's so much in this, and a lot of it for me wasn't some of the major scenes like the thrashing or whatever. It's just the little tiny surreal asides or even the mundane bits, like you said about. Arthur Lowe in bed and his wife playing the recorder is just hilarious. I mean, I it's the fact there's an out of tune recorder. That's why it's a bit like Gregory's girl, isn't it? Because there was that scene of that guy doing the high jump and just falling into just the, falling into the bar. Do you remember that? Yeah. In the background, and like you said, somebody dressed as a penguin running past the window and the headmaster doing a double take sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or is it somebody yeah. naked runs across the playground, isn't it, in Gregory's girl? Or is that in Clockwise? That might be in Clockwise. <laughs> and I think John Cleese does a double take out the window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that, apart from the, you know, the outstanding finale, favourite scenes or standout moments for you guys? Uh, definitely the caning, just the yeah. whole way it's done, the sound, and uh, again, as you said, you get Alex Delage, <laughs> the way he walks into the gym. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's just, it's yeah. just the swagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree, and it uses the tried and tested element of cutting away and leaving the imagination and seeing the reactions of other people who can either see or hear to give you an increased sense of what's going on and the difficulty of the situation, rather than just showing it directly. And what that's led to, obviously, we've talked about with Clockwork Orange, but yeah, the brutality of it. Uh, longer cane in the note the others got as far as how many strokes and stuff, and then also mm. the run up as well shows yeah. that it's pure sadism don't we get that sort of cutaway sequence in the caning bit in kez you know where the guy the little kids found with the cigarette in his pocket yes don't they cut away there as well and or or you don't actually see you just see his eyes as he starts crying or something you don't actually see the yeah. physical action and that was really yeah. effective there wasn't it when we discussed cares you know we said that less is more in this case yeah in relation to this film i've seen the words angry sting of this film mm-hmm. and i think that that's a, a combined that element that seen as the anger and also actually it would sting in there but it does to ourselves our, our reaction to it i know scott being older he'd gone through a system 
you know, where where there was corporal punishment in schools, but you know. yeah, I was at the receiving end of it as well. Yeah. <laughs> Me too. So yeah. 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 yeah, you as well. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, just on the cusp. Yeah. yeah, as I said, that didn't exist in, in my comprehensive, uh, thankfully. I imagine there would have been a, a lot, lot different reaction. Um, somebody tried to gain yeah. somebody that they got punched. <laughs> so it's, yeah, my, my school was more crowd, crowd control than anything else. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was just it was just, just giving the streets around the school a bit of a break for a couple of hours each day. So I think the way in which that's coming across, the, the regime, as it were, I think is quite important to, to see played out and that bit an extreme of it but there's other bits throughout the film where they're talking about how that they don't even know what the rules are when they start at the school but they're expected to follow them and that newest kid the yes, um yes. is it is it jude jude, jude. Yeah. Dude, um, I wanted to ask you about that in a sec. And, and that shows, to some extent, at the very beginning, it's that's our eyes of somebody brand new into that situation, sort of yeah. trying to get to grips with how, how the system works without being told how the system works. That, I think, is a thread all the way through that it, it feels alien to, to me, this whole system and way of doing things. And there's lots of little indicators of it. It's not just the big caning scene. It's it's all sorts of things with the, you know, the, the meals and the way that the set up with the sleeping arrangements and etc it's all a bit weird and them swapping <laughs> their their boys as well is a bit you know a trope for public schools but um obviously um it's a cliche but a cliche would be a cliche if it wasn't true yeah we didn't we didn't get the box seat warmings uh scene uh, oh that was yeah, yeah. We, we didn't we didn't see it we just said it yeah because yeah, i read uh, despite my voice i didn't go to a public school all right <laughs> no i didn't go to public school but i read um roald dahl do you ever read that book one of his autobiographies called Boy. <laughs> he was talking yeah. about that, the fagging and the, yeah, you yeah, had to go for half, warm the prefect's box seat for <laughs> half an hour. It's just, oh my God. The, the interesting thing as well, the, the difference in age between Malcolm McDowell's character uh, and the, the whips is only a year because he's lower six and they're upper six. Yeah, mm. yeah. You mm. know, you get the impression that there's this vast sort of age difference or a difference in experience, but there's literally only 12 months between them. He would be in that position in, in the next, next year. Well, I suppose at that age, a year is just everything, isn't it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But it would have been interesting if the ending hadn't been how it was. The see how he he would have behaved mm. in that position. Whether the mm. the suddenly having the extra power and stuff over there would have been a, a change in his behaviour because of the way that, that power corrupts and things, or whether he'd stick to his anti-establishment ways and therefore not carry out the system in the same way. It'd be difficult to try and work out that. But we won't know because that wasn't the way the film played out. Exactly. Well, going back. To what we said earlier, yeah, you could have had a year of him as a whip, and then he becomes uh, Alex, you know, <laughs> in a roundabout way. <laughs> Gets corrupted, yeah. Incredible. Yeah, as I say, great companion piece or a double bill, putting those two together. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, actually, yeah, that Jute character, mm. that young kid, don't you think it's weird the way he just sort of disappeared? I felt like there, was good, there should have been a resolution to that, or not? Most of those it, youngsters it, did, though, didn't they? Then focused just up on, on the, the older pupils, didn't it, for a while? Yeah, I don't know. I just thought there'd be some sort of resolution. I think they had a lot of footage they cut, actually. That'd be interesting that... to see if there is, yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting saw... to see whether there was an ending for that character whether good That's or bad I mean. that was actually it yeah mm. rather than leave it open I'd quite like to see him uh, grab the mortar and uh, you know <laughs> yeah, maybe not <laughs> 
He could have been, be like, like, been radicalised, couldn't he? Yeah, probably like, yeah. Well. Oh, you see him, you know, this is just a flashback to him suddenly sat at a desk in Downing Street um, and <laughs> yeah. later become Prime Minister. <laughs> and, and... Oh, this film is generally regarded as one of the greatest British movies of all time. I think it's number 11 or something or 12 in you know the BFI's greatest British movie. I'd still get the general feeling, though, that it's not discussed as much as, say, something like The Third Man or those ones that we've spoke about previously is it a, like a forgotten classic this one just say i think it's more cult it's, it's um, got that, that in, in, yeah. in a way i think most people if you say if to them they're gonna go down the line of rudyard kipling poem and i'm <laughs> not sure whether the title for this because it's not the title of the actual source material no, changed that to be because that was crusaders i think yeah. so i don't know whether there is a link whether if comes from rudyard kipling anyway because obviously you could rewrite if as a poem to take into account this and that will probably be quite <laughs> I think it was randomly um, selected I think I read somewhere that it was I don't know it was the assistant director or the continuity yeah, woman or something I overheard a conversation with Lindsay Anderson and said use the word if and then he insisted on the four dots rather than the more traditional three apparently mm. after the word yeah. if well, the only bit from the poem they said oh, the, you know, you'll be a man my son that was the bit they took ah uh, yeah yeah yeah, but uh, with him it, being radicalised, really, if you think about it, yeah. With, with it being a cult movie, as you said, Stephen, as well, things like Withnail get spoken about far more than this, though, surely. Yeah, but I think that's because of the time frame in which it came out. I think if there'd mm, been, yeah, I think if there'd been video uh, and Channel Four at the time at which this <laughs> yeah. came out, that would have meant that this was more in the public consciousness. Even if people hadn't seen it, they'd be aware of it existing. Whereas Withnail and other, and other films like that managed to get a bit more into the consciousness because of um it was easier wasn't it i suppose yeah and i mean i mean uh, this film obviously due to timing uh, as, as far as how long it's it's been out has gained the audience as far as people have seen it i mean it was very popular at the time i mean though i think they were surprised by the the critical and commercial success of it from what I, do I you remember. know how uh, that came about because paramount or whatever the parent company was that made it really didn't like it and they tried to bury it, and they put all their money behind Barbarella. Oh, yes. And when, oh, that's right, and that was a real flop. Yeah, it? and when Barbarella wasn't as successful as they thought, they thought, bloody hell, we need something. So, well, where's that British thing? Let's let's put it <laughs> out. And it surprised and everybody. I don't, with I, I don't know was. how much that would be, because when they the people who were making the decisions maybe felt that the zeitgeist was Barbarella and not this, and the, the turning point in which counterculture in the 60s during the time of filming from start to finish the, the mood had changed yeah. out there really and um, that's why this one ended up being more of a commercial success yeah. than Barbarella because the people had moved on I'm going to assume that at the time of this 1968 and Anthony may be able to back me up on this. Wasn't Robert Evans in charge of Paramount at the time? Yeah, Bob Evans, yeah. And then there was that crazy guy, Bluedhorn or something, yeah. Charlie Bluedhorn, mm. or something like that. He took over. Uh, I think he tried to change Paramount. Oh, I can't remember. Yeah. I read about this ages ago. Yeah. I have to go back and it was it The Kid Stays in the Picture was the book, wasn't it? I have to go back and have a little read. But this is right at the very beginning of your favourite and one of my favourite eras, the Easy Rider Raging Bull period, isn't it? 1968 is there. It kind of fits into it, really, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. It's got that sort of radical element. Yeah. I mean, it's not, 
you think about it, it's the ultimate anti-commercial film. It doesn't make any sense, really. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. a very, very elite world. It's black and white. It's got high eroticism. It's just got everything that probably would have scared audiences off in 68. An X but... certificate as well. You know, it's yeah. limiting the audience, you know, the amount of people that could actually see it. Yeah, I don't know how I actually ended up seeing it originally. Was it Movie Drive? It may well have been, eh? Oh, I saw it on Channel 4. I'm pretty sure it was yeah. Channel 4, one of those late Friday night screenings that they did and I think they then showed Oh Lucky Man and um, Britannia Hospital because I remember seeing parts of Britannia Hospital and thinking even that was a little bit surreal because I thought it was going to be you know with people like Arthur Lowe in that one as well I was thinking yeah. it was going to be one of those you know traditional British comedies like farces sort of thing and I just remember it being very very bizarre and I don't think I've ever gone back to it I'm definitely going to go back and watch this one very soon and I'm going to watch the other two as well just as a reference point to find out how this progresses even though they're not actually connected I'd like to see how Lindsay Anderson sort of carries forward as a director and where he's going with this perhaps even review it here at a later date but I'm certainly going to go back to all three I mean this has got serious depth I mean I think the script's amazing I think Stephen you were saying earlier about they talk about about the glory of war or something in the speeches and you hear the general the general comes in he's visiting isn't he or something while they're doing the cadet drill and he's talking about honour and everything but he's basically a pro-war <laughs> speech and then he gets a chance to try it all out for real you know because the shooting starts for real for all you could actually be critical of the whole traditional thing of inciting boys into going to war on some premise that it's glorious or honourable uh, which it isn't but at least when 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 the, the shit hits the fan or the, or the bullets hit the, the bodies, the general there grabs a rifle and, and starts, yeah. you know, gets stuck in. And got to also appreciate that in that finale with the headmaster and previously with the vicar, that when the bullets are flying, they're, they're the ones that are still left standing up rather than cowering and hiding. They're living out their values and not just telling other people too. At least they've got that going for them. It's certainly a disguised pro-war, as you said. Um, so you're right, absolutely. Yeah. And there's good bits of comedy as well. The bishop uh, running away with that enormous hat on <laughs> as the shooting starts. I remember that bit as the smoke's rising. And then the very last scene, what's really interesting, again, spoiler alert, audience, mm -hmm. uh, the headmaster actually comes in and says, boys, I understand you. He makes a point of saying that, doesn't he? I can help you, I understand you. And then he gives the rifle to the girl and she... It's almost like the boys don't know what she's going to do because she's got a revolver tucked away and she just uh, pulls right, it out. Right. And she takes that action unilaterally at the spur of the moment and... It's one of the questions that I have in mind about this film, how they go from randomly meeting her in a cafe to being able to talk her into what is the finale of the film and get been involved in that. I mean, is it that she is coming from the outside, the counterculture, the wanting to pull down the establishment and she's got ideology yeah. or is it that just that she's embracing chaos and just being led it's difficult to work out which way around it is to be perfectly honest because she's quite an unknown really you know you don't even get a name for her or anything she's yeah she's, she's the girl yeah well i think he just meets a kindred spirit doesn't he who mm -hmm. meets maybe someone else who's a bit ahead of her time or is wants to be a rebel i think that's the that's the bit i love the artistic side of it is that they don't explain it but you kind of get that feeling you know she's said, on yeah. their side you can interpret all of this movie in a thousand different ways yeah because you, you have to determine in your own brain what you think is real and what is imagined mm -hmm. and whatever sequence you put them in if you decide that the end sequence is real and the rest of it is all like a dream sequence fine you know that's a great way of looking at it 
But as I say, with things like the black and white sequences and the dream, you know, some bits you know are definitely fantasized. Absolutely, yeah, that's clear cut. But other bits, I just like that element of doubt in my mind when I was watching it because it kept me alert and it kept yeah. me thinking. I like this because I'm actually having to work on this film. This film's making me think. Mm. And if I was to go back and watch it now in quick succession, I'd probably look at it in a completely different way now, uh, different scenes. I'll go, okay, I can see where that's coming from or why that's been included here or whether that is a figment of Malcolm McDowell's imagination or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's a very clever film, very, very clever film. It's fairly timeless as well, because I suppose the public schools may have changed a little bit, but if you look at Bojo and <laughs> he, he looks like he's come straight from myth, doesn't he? You know, Boris. <laughs> it's seat and, warmer, uh, definite seat warmer. Yeah. And there's always good to be teenage rebellion you know there's always going to be that person that's outside the system while you know 80 or 90 percent are not embracing it but you know they're yeah, they're yeah really, the system almost. it did occur to me uh, and does every time i'm watching it what i would be like thrust into the, this situation even at a young age because unfortunately i've not been uh, a conformist um you'd start a union Stephen. i'd be either <laughs> expelled more or less straight away or, or it would be that some kind of guy foxy and you know <laughs> the entire yeah. thing falling down yeah you, it's difficult to try and work out when you're part of that the majority like you say are going to conform even if they don't agree but then they'll probably just yeah. perpetuate it themselves as well which is how, yeah. how it works unfortunately mm. any, great stuff yeah any final thoughts I mean it's a great movie that's that's all I can say it's certainly passed me by over these last 40 years and I wished I'd gone back to it again earlier and watched this a few more times than I have done just that it's got loads of levels and Lindsay Anderson's a unique filmmaker and Malcolm mm. McDowell's got that thing he does you know that's probably in most of his films <laughs> just yeah. that look that whole yeah but he's yeah. quite likable he's sort of a bit I mean okay Alex isn't likable but this guy is fairly likable yeah he doesn't alienate the audience but he's got that kind of weird weirdness about him which fits this film perfectly and then yeah it's just got loads of layers and it, again it just shows you who's running the country basically and how they got there <laughs> okay well that's if from 1968 uh, the three of us have agreed to get back together one more time which is really good news so let's take a little break and I believe it's Stephen's turn to select the movie we will be back straight after this Stephen, it's got to be your turn, my friend, to choose the next movie. What have you got for us, mate? Right, well, going back 15 years or so before this film mm-hmm. to a film that's definitely all in black and white, so that's, <laughs> that's helpful to not throw us out. It's um, set in a, a northern town, as you'd probably expect coming from me. <laughs> it is, however, again, uh, a certain amount of a study of, of class and people's own perceptions of who they are and how other people see them. So I've decided that considering having Anthony on and his ability to go with us in looking a bit more in depth of something and be, uh, rather than it just being something that's light. We can actually pay proper attention and give a proper review of, of some depth to an inspector calls. Oh, nice. I don't know if Anthony knows this, but this is yeah. one of Stephen's favourite movies of all time. Am I right, sir? It's one of my favourite films, yeah. yeah. And much has got, he's reticent about bringing certain films like Lawrence of Arabia and, mm. and such to the, the forum here because he wants to be very careful about when it's reviewed <laughs> and who it's reviewed by to make sure it's not sort of overlooked the, the nuances or it's not shit upon or it's not 
um, treated um, without the, the full reverence it is. Stephen, it's like well, asking somebody <laughs> to judge your children, basically. That's it's the, a little bit, yeah. You know, but, a, I mean, I, and this is it with Anthony. I mean, Scott is, is always going to be fine with, with Scott, but I was hoping once we'd started recording with Anthony initially, out recognising the, the quality of what he brings to reviews, I was yes. thinking that'll be a good one to get him on rather than it being just me and Scott at some point. I'll try and have it in as a, a one with you, Anthony, at some point. Nice. So um, I'll trust you to give it attention mm-hmm. and not just dismiss it. So there nice. you go, I'm putting it out there and, um, and we'll, we'll see how that one goes. And that's the Alistair Sim one, though. Yeah. Alistair Sim one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love uh, I love films where the respectable middle class is just completely taken apart. <laughs> and you realise how many skeletons are in the closet and they're not as respectable. I love those kind of films. So, yeah. Yeah. I will enjoy this one again. Yeah, looking forward to that. I think I've only seen it once, so... <laughs> I'm surprised at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, how many, times, how many times have you seen it? You probably couldn't count. Over a dozen. Yeah. Okay. So I want to watch about once a year, to be perfectly honest, and I shouldn't really. I should give it more time, but... It's difficult to resist, mate, yeah? It is. I mean, it, it appears on television, I just think, oh, why not? You know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. In Inspector Calls, 1954 is our next movie when the three of us are together. Hopefully, Tony might be able to join us as well. We'll see nearer the time. Yeah. Before we go, Anthony, a quick rundown of your other podcasts, sir. So, yeah, Glass Onion on John Lennon is still the high-profile one. John Lennon and Beatles. Film Gold, about films. Probably would have done if at some point, but we've done it already. That's fine. There's loads of other no, good we'll, ones. We'll all watch it again and then I'll join you, mate, and do it once more. That's fine. Yeah, or I could borrow the audio file. So I didn't say that. <laughs> and, uh, and then Life and Life Only is uh, sort of psychology-based, but alternative media as well. So self-development, quite eclectic that one. Podcast about life, you can't really go wrong. Never going to run out of material. <laughs> Never run out of material the, on that. That one. was the theory, yeah. I'm also going to be specifically looking for any Beatles references in an Inspector Calls as well. Yeah, we'll have to make that a running, uh, running uh, theme. I bet there is one. I bet there's something. I can't see anything blindingly obvious at the moment, but we'll find I mean, they could, it's bizarre. They come up when we did um, Dead of Night. Yeah. And, and the girl is looking after the two children. Just happens to be singing Golden Slumbers, which is completely bizarre. Of course, yeah, that's in the Because Paul McCartney had seen the lyrics and because he couldn't read music. I think I said this when we did it, but yeah, he just took the lyrics and thought, oh, I'm Paul McCartney, I'll just make up an amazing song called Golden Slumbers. (laughs) But the fact that it was in there is just totally bizarre. Perhaps it just shows that the Beatles are kind of all encompassing in a weird way. You know, there's references to be found everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Stephen, thank you so much once again, sir, for being here. No, it's been my pleasure. Looking forward to reviewing and inspector calls next time. That's it. This has been Real Britannia. Thanks so much, guys. See you all very soon. Goodbye. Take care. Absolute shah. Positive shah. Good luck. Thank you.
British hand-ups are. I'm sick of pains. <laughs>